Good evening, Praxis. Welcome back. It's so good to be back. It's good to see you here, um, especially being back from last week's hiatus. Uh, my name is Alessandro Gonzalez. If we've never met, um, I'm one of the interns here at Praxis or at Lighthouse. Um, I get the privilege of serving here alongside with Pastor Allen. Um, if we haven't met yet, I really would love to meet you and to get to know you. So um, if I don't get to meet you later tonight, perhaps in the next few weeks we can meet. Um, if you would, <clears throat> you know, like to help a brother out, um, you can come up to me and just say hi and introduce yourself to me, and that'll, that'll make it a lot easier. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I want to meet you, would love to get to know you, um, so please come say hi. I do want to apologize for last week that neither Pastor Allen nor I could be here. Um, I tried to convince and, you know, tell Pastor Allen, look, I, I don't think we should go to Pachanga down to the casinos. We can just do a game night here at church. It'll be fine. We don't need to make the trek down there. We can play Mahjong here. But he insisted. He wanted to go to Pachanga. He wanted to do some team building. So I'm just kidding. We weren't at Pachanga. Um, so yeah, either way, I'm sorry we weren't here last week. Um, I hope you did enjoy the game night, though, and it was a lot of fun. And um, I, I think we trusted you a lot, and we didn't put a reminder out there that there's no gambling on the church premises, so I'm thankful that I didn't hear any rumors of houses lost and things like that. <laughs> um, okay, so we have one goal for tonight. Our goal is to have a crash course on hermeneutics, um, which essentially is getting at how do we interpret the Bible, how do we study the Bible, which is critical for our life and for how we're going to live out the life that the Lord has given us. We want to know how to study the Bible and how to apply the Bible. So that's where hermeneutics comes in and is really critical um, for our Christian living. So the reason, though, we want to spend a little time thinking about hermeneutics is because as we go in the next few weeks into our summer study, we're going to be doing an inductive Bible study in the book of Titus. And so we want to give you a little bit of background on hermeneutics, on how to interpret the scriptures and how to look at the scripture so that we can be ready for Titus once that comes up in a couple of weeks. So if you've, you know, never done an inductive Bible study, your hands get a little bit sweaty when you hear that word. That's okay. I'm glad you're here tonight. Uh, we want to equip you. We want to encourage you on how to be able to do that. Um, so the game plan is just to give you some basic information on how to study the scriptures for yourself. But so in order to do that, what we're going to do in terms of format for the evening is I'm going to um, just straight up copy one of the professors, actually now president at TMS, the Master's Seminary. His name's Abner Chow. And we're, we're going to do what he calls a lermon. So that's basically a combination of a lecture and a sermon. Um, so... Some things might sound kind of luxury and maybe boring and putting you to sleep. <laughs> Some things might sound kind of preachy, like a sermon. And essentially, the goal with that is that it absolves me from any criticism for tonight. So if you don't like tonight, you know, it's, some of it's a lecture, some of it's a sermon. So we'll call it a lermon. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, but in all seriousness, the goal for tonight, again, is just to help you understand a little bit about hermeneutics, and then we're going to apply some of those uh, tools and skills to the book of Jonah. Uh, just like with anything in terms of skills, you have to use it in order to get better at it, right? You need to put the skill into practice for you to be able to grow in that skill. Um, so before we jump into the details of hermeneutics, 
I did want to provide a little bit of motivation as to why we want to study the Scriptures, the motivation for studying the Bible. And we're not going to look at all the reasons, obviously. I mean, there's plenty of reasons to study Scripture, but I did want to give you two reasons as, that can serve as motivations for studying the Scripture. The first is in order for us to be able to know God, to know God. That should be one of the driving factors in our life of why we want to study the Scriptures and be equipped on how to do that. If you read Genesis 1-1, right, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first verse in the Bible, if you read all the way to the end or you just look at the very end, Revelation 22, verse 20 to 21, it reads, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So the Bible begins and it ends with God. And everything all in between is actually also about God carrying out His plan throughout redemptive history. So if we want to know God, we must know Him through His Word. And everyone can look at the creation and they can know that there is a God or there's somebody, there must be somebody who have created the entire universe. But in order for us to actually know Him, to know the Creator, we have to know Him through His Word as He's revealed Himself. That's how we learn about his character. That's how we learn about his plan, his purposes. That's how we learn about the things that God loves and also how we learn about the things that God hates. So we have to know God through his word, how he's revealed himself to us there. Not only that, we also get to know more about our own sin, our own sick hearts, and the devastation of sin in the world, and that the only hope in this world is Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the gospel, the good news of Christ. Where do we learn about all those things? We learn about it in His Word. We can never learn about that just by looking at the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, etc. We have to know God through His Word. So, after all, what we're going to see in a minute is that the Word of God, the Bible, is God-breathed. It's the very Word that comes directly from God through human instruments like Moses and Paul and Jonah. So when we're dealing with the Bible, when we're dealing with Scripture, it is the very Word of God that came from Him Himself. It's not human wisdom and things like that. Um, So we need to be aware of that and be reminded of that. So these next verses I want to share with you are really just a general encouragement for you to pursue knowing God. Um, They're not, you know anything beyond that at this moment. So Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. So that verse in particular, those verses in particular were pretty helpful to me going through seminaries. I was struggling with different things and just, you know, struggling with trying to keep my head above water. But that really encouraged me that I I don't need to boast in my grades or anything, not that there's anything to boast about, but, um, you know, I needed to make my focus about knowing Christ and knowing God. And so that, that verse really helped me. So maybe if you're struggling through whatever it is, You want to set your eyes on remembering and knowing God, knowing Christ. 
Now, the other one that has always been an encouragement to me is John 17, 3. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer um, as he was praying for his disciples before he went to the cross. It says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So again, those are just a couple of verses to encourage you, to motivate you in terms of looking at the scriptures in order to know God. So that's our first motivation. Our second motivation of why we want to know how to study the Bible is so that we can be sanctified, so that we can be sanctified. Now, just to be clear, the Bible is not the only factor when it comes to our sanctification. However, it is a major factor. So we're not going to give a full theological explanation as how sanctification works. Um, remember, this is, this is a Lerman, okay? So we're not going to do all the details on how or sanctification actually works. And some passages that might help solidify this in our mind is 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, right? We're all familiar with this, but all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And another classic is John 17, 17. Again, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So from these two texts, it's clear that there is a link between the word of God and being sanctified. So if God is going to use his word to sanctify us, we better have a good grip on how we ought to study the scripture and interpret the scripture. Now, one more verse that helps us to understand one piece of the pie in our sanctification is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so, if we're going to be sanctified, if we're going to be growing from one, glory, one degree of glory to the next, and the way to do that is to have our eyes pegged to God, pegged to Christ, we're only going to see Christ in the Word, right? That's where we need to be looking to see Christ, to have our gaze upon Him so that we can be made in the image of Christ, one, by, one bit by one bit, right? Okay, so those are some motivations on why we want to improve our study of Scripture, of how to interpret and understand Scripture, to know God and to be sanctified. So now we're going to jump into the meat of the, the evening. <clears throat> and um, this is just the meat. The potatoes will come a little bit later. Um, and we'll try to balance the meat with the potatoes, okay? Lerman, Lerman, okay, Lerman. Uh, we're going to balance some of the meat and the potatoes. I'm a father too, so if these jokes are like dad jokes, then you know why. So... Um, but sometimes, you know, we're a little bit carb-heavy, so we might be a little bit heavy on Jonah tonight as we look at it. Um, but again, as with any skill, whether you're a mechanic, a nurse, etc., the more you practice a skill, the better you'll get at it, right? So we're going to put some of those things to practice tonight with looking at the book of Jonah. So we'll do a little bit of theory and then I'll spend a chunk of time applying the theory to Jonah. But before we jump into the details of the details, meaning the details of hermeneutics, 
there's some preliminary information that we want to know that's going to help us start off on the right foot before we engage with the scriptures. So what are those things? Well, one thing to keep in mind is that when you come to scripture, when you want to study scripture, this is super important. Context is king. Sorry, so we're looking at the literary context first. This is part of the preliminary information. But you want to remember this and always remember this. If you're in a, um, trying to understand a passage on your own, you're having a theological debate with somebody over some of the scripture and what does it actually mean, always remember context is king. Context is king. Please don't ever forget that. So you want to know the literary context of our passage. So this would include things like the genre of the passage. So what we're getting at with that is that Am I studying something like an epistle, like we're going to be doing in a few weeks with the book of Titus, an epistle or a letter from Paul to so-and-so? Um, am I studying an Old Testament narrative, like we're going to do with parts of Jonah for tonight? Or am I studying an Old Testament poetry um, that's also actually in Jonah, which makes Jonah super interesting? It's technically a prophecy, but it reads like Old Testament narrative with a chunk in chapter 2 of Old Testament poetry. And so looking at the book of Jonah is great because you get all kinds of these different genres in there. But also, you know, am I studying a parable like in parts of the Gospels, right, where Jesus is telling a story with a purpose, with a point? Um, of course, as we know, if it's in Scripture, it's communicating truth because, as we said earlier, it's breathed out by God, right? The very word in the Bible is breathed out by God. <clears throat> and so understanding the genre is going to help us understand how that truth is being communicated. So again, in Titus, it's an epistle. There's going to be a much more of a logical argumentation and a flow to the letter that's coming from Paul to Titus. Um, you could go sentence by sentence. You could go paragraph by paragraph and actually trace the logical flow of Paul as he's communicating to Titus in that letter. Now, with narrative, um, similarly, there might be one or a few theological truths that are being communicated in there, but it's in the form of recounting particular events. Now, just to help make this a little more concrete for ourselves, um, you know, the way you, what we're getting at here, for example, is the way you would read Shakespeare, okay? The way you would read Shakespeare is completely different than how you would read, say, I don't know, um, Ikea furniture assembly manuals, right? One of them, obviously, Shakespeare actually has words in it, whereas Ikea assembly manuals don't have words in it, right? They have stick figures. Um, so also, you know, the way that they both elicit emotions, um, Shakespeare and Ikea, is completely different, right? Shakespeare has a rhythm, it has beauty in the words that's it uses to bring out your emotions and our understanding of love and betrayal and all of those things that he's communicating through his characters, right? Ikea uses stick figures to bring out our emotions that we didn't realize were in our sin-sick hearts. Um, so you know, I actually can't read Shakespeare, so it elicits the same type of emotion that Ikea <laughs> elicits for me. So um, the point is, is that the way you read and interpret poetry like Shakespeare, I think that's poetry, right? Um, and the way you understand it, like a science textbook, right, is very different. 
And so the same is true with regards to Old Testament narrative, Old Testament poetry, or epistles in the Bible. So genre is a very helpful piece of literary context information that's going to help us to understand the Bible better. Um, okay, another piece of important information um, of literary context is the author. In other words, who wrote this book that we're going to be studying? Who, uh, and what chapter am I in in the book? What verse am I in in studying in the Bible? How does it fit within the rest of the Bible? Um, it's helpful to know who wrote this book because, for example, when you look at the book of Romans, as we've been doing the last few months, um, there's this phrase, for example, the righteousness of God. Okay, well, what does that even mean? What is he getting at? Um, well, it helps us to know that Paul wrote the book of Romans. And so we might look throughout the rest of the book to understand what does he mean when he says the righteousness of God? If I still need some more help, okay, what else did Paul write? I want to go look, how did Paul use that phrase in other of his letters, the righteousness of God? You know, after, if I'm still looking for more help, I might go beyond the book that Paul wrote. In other words, something like, you know, the Johannine epistles, um, you know, the book of Hebrews, or etc., something like that. So it's helpful to know who wrote that particular book. At the same time, what do you know about Paul? Well, we have some information about him in the book of Acts, right, and other books like Galatians. We have personal background information about Paul that might help us to understand something specific in his uh, passage, in the passage that we're studying. So knowing the author who wrote the book is helpful as well. Um, so some helpful questions as you're trying to understand the literary context of where the passage is that you're studying is, how does this passage fit in this book? How does this fit within the logical flow that Paul is you know, trying to show us here as he's communicating his letter to Titus? Um, another question you could ask is, if this passage wasn't here, well, what would I be missing from his logical argument? Or what would I be missing in my understanding of Scripture? Um, that's another helpful question to, under, to try to understand what's going on with that passage. Um, if <clears throat> we can, that's good for that. So the next part is the historical context. The historical context. And what we're getting at here, um, this is fairly straightforward, but we want to know what is the historical setting of the passage that we're studying. As you might be aware, maybe you are, maybe you're not, the Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years. So 1,500 years is how long it took to write the Scripture. Now, how many authors actually were used to write the Bible? How many human authors did God use to write the Bible? about 35 human authors. Now, think about that for a moment. You guys have probably played that game telephone where, you know, you send a message and pass it on to so-and-so and so-and-so and see what comes out at the end. Most of the time, you know, it never comes out right. right? You never get the same message um, from one end to the other end. And some of that's because you guys are, you know, some of you are some nefarious characters and you, you know, insert other messages into that original message. But think about this. The Bible is not like that, right? The Bible doesn't get the message mixed up over 1,500 years and 35 human authors. The Bible is extremely consistent, not extremely, it is consistent with itself, okay? Over um, 66 books in the Bible, 
35 human authors, 1,500 years, three different languages, several different cultures, many different locations of where these books were written, and yet there is consistency. Yet there is one story that God is writing throughout redemptive history from Genesis 1-1 all the way through to Revelation 22. So the Bible is not like human books. Um, this is an amazing feat, and, and it's a humanly impossible feat to do something like this. You've read Harry Potter. I, I know you have. I can see it in you. <laughs> Maybe you've read The Lord of the Rings. Um, but you know what? They couldn't keep their own stories straight with themselves, right? And that's one author in one lifetime. But we're talking about the Bible written by God, the God who cannot lie and cannot contradict himself. Again, 1,500 years, 35 human authors. An impossible feat by human standards, and yet it is what we have in the Scripture. Therefore, in my eyes, this is a miracle. It's a miracle that God gave us the Scriptures like this. Um, you know, the other thing with the um, um, whoever it was that wrote Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, at least the Harry Potter uh, author had technology, right? And so they had an advantage in that sense. But this is a Lerman, okay? Moses was the first man to download data from the cloud to a tablet. Okay, let's move on. Um, so there we go. All right. Um, so we want to know the historical context, all right? The historical context of when the book was written, the political situation, the religious circumstances, what year was it written in, who were the kings that were in power, what were the nations that were at play with Israel. All of that historical information is going to help us to understand the Bible better. Um, we're going to see an example of that tonight as we look in the book of Jonah. Okay, enough preliminary information. Let's move on. Come on. Observation, interpretation, application. Okay, there's a variety of methods of how, or a system we could call it, of how somebody might study the Bible. Sometimes there's three steps, sometimes there's seven steps, sometimes there's 12 steps. But at the end of the day, they all basically fit into this general pattern of observation, interpretation, application. Sorry, I should go the other way because you guys are facing the, me. Anyway, um, so they all fit into those three different um, elements. They all follow that same basic pattern. <clears throat> Today, we're only looking at observation and interpretation. Applications for another day. Pastor Allen can take that. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about observations. Now, this is um, something that I really want to stress to you. This gets much overlooked, and this is very underappreciated when it comes to Bible study. So let, hear me, please. When I say do not skip past this step, don't go too fast in making observations and just go on into the next step. It was Martin Luther who said, I study my Bible as I gather apples. First, I shake the whole tree that the ripest might fall. And then I shake each limb. And when I've shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig. And then I look under each leaf. So that's how Martin Luther, the you know, instigator of the Reformation 500 years ago, studied the scripture. And so with that similar attitude, we need to think about making observations like that 
until we've squeezed everything we can out of the passage. So again, I just want to like try to instill it in you. Don't move too quickly beyond making observations. Um, it's so easy to do, and we just want to rush to get to the meaning, but you got to make the time to spend making observations. Um, and I do want to encourage you with this, because this is sometimes a bit challenging to do observations. Um, so as an encouragement, the more you practice it, the, more, the better you're going to get at this. Um, now, just to share with you, when I first got saved, um, I was a little bit older in life, and I wasn't much of a reader, if that wasn't already obvious. <laughs> you know, I was trained as an engineer, but funny enough, the more letters that the math had in the equations, the better I was at it. Um, but I hadn't actually read any books. Um, I think the only books I had read were The Hobbit and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that's it. I hadn't read any other books. Somehow I made it through middle school, high school, undergrad, grad school, all this stuff, and I never read any books. So God is gracious. I'm a testimony. I'm a testimony. <laughs> so, so when I was first told to make observations in the Bible, you know, I, I was totally lost. I had no idea what to do. Um, so if you feel like that, I just want you to know there's hope for you. Um, I'm a living hope. Um, if the Lord can help me to learn how to do it, he can most certainly help you. <laughs> um, okay, so how do we do this? How do we make these observations in the biblical text? What are we looking for and what are we trying to do? Um, basically, the main question is this, right? What does the passage say? What does the passage say? Now, um, in your little handout things, there's what I've tried to shrink down into that called a Bible observation cheat sheet. Um, you can look, there's like a million questions all jumbled into little tiny paragraphs for you. We'll probably give that to you in a more useful format later on. But, you know, some of the questions there are, what, is the, what are the key words in this passage? Are there synonyms, antonyms, uh, repeated words or phrases, which we're going to see some of that tonight. Um, anyway, there's just a sampling of questions on the sheet that you were given. Um, the key idea, though, is that you just want to see what the passage says. You're not trying to make any observations yet, which may sound weird. Um, you're not trying to make an interpretation at the moment. But, so do your best to slow down, make the observations, ask questions, write them down. Taking time in this step of making observations will help make um, your interpretations and your applications way better. So I would encourage you, as you're doing your Bible reading plan, if you're in Genesis 1-1, it's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, when you do your reading plan, when you do your studies, try to make at least 10 observations when you're studying a passage. You know, when we were in seminary, one of the first exercises we had to do was making a, something like 40 observations in one verse in 3 John, which, you know, most people have no idea what that book is even talking about. <laughs> Um, but in one tiny little verse, one or two verses, we had to come up with about 40 observations in there. So the point is, there's tons of observations to make. The more you practice, the better you'll get at making them. Don't cut the process short by skipping over it. One practical tip on how to do this, print out the passage, get a pen, get a highlighter, start writing and scribbling all over it. And if you're just trying to keep yourself awake and just you know, sometimes I wake up with a big line across my Bible. Uh, so don't skip that part. 
print it out, write on it, circle things, highlight, ask questions, write down everything you can. The question is, what does this passage say? Now, once you've made the observations, you go to the next part, which is interpretation. The main question here is, what does this passage mean? Um, what does this passage mean? Now, this is both more simple, but also more complicated than it seems. And it's simple because the idea of, of interpretation and, and how we go about it is familiar to you. It's in some ways very intuitive, but it's complicated because there's a lot of pitfalls and a lot of snags that we stumble over when we're not careful in how we interpret the scripture. There's a couple of ideas here I want to discuss, and um, these are just little like pegs that you can hang your hat. I didn't wear this on purpose for this, but you can wear your, hang your hat on that, um, on some of these ideas. And it should help you from going astray as you're interpreting the Bible. The first idea here is exegesis versus eisegesis. I'm not talking about Isis or anything to you like that, but <laughs> exegesis versus eisegesis. Exegesis means that we want to extract the meaning out of the text. So that's where the exit part comes from that word, exegesis. We want to understand the meaning that is flowing out of the text to us as we study and interpret the Scripture. That is, I'll make it clear, the correct way to interpret the Scripture, trying to see what the text is coming, the meaning that's coming out of the text. Now contrast that with eisegesis, which means that we're trying to read the meaning into the text. Now, I'm pretty sure nobody here is actually going to walk up to the Bible and say, I'm going to eisegesis this thing because, yeah, that's the way to go. That's, nobody here is doing that, I'm sure. But the problem is we accidentally do that. We do it without realizing where we try to read our own meaning and interpretation into the text instead of trying to extract the meaning from the text. So you have to be careful with that. Um, we don't want to try to understand what the passage means to me and that, I mean, sometimes you read something, you're encouraged, and you just needed that little lift up for the day or for the week, and that's okay. But when we're talking about the meaning and the interpretation of a passage, we have to get the meaning out of the text, not just respond with answers that, well, this text means to me. So we have to be careful with that. And we all do that. I, like, so I'm not trying to you know, point a finger or something, but you just have to be wary of that. Which this brings us, though, to our next um, little peg we want to hang our hat on. And that's the idea of authorial intent, right? We want to understand what was it that the author was trying to communicate with this passage to us. Um, we want to understand what was his intent and what he was saying to us um, and what he is actually communicating to us. Now, this is, again, normal, everyday usage of the way we interact and speak to each other, right? Um, if you tell me I owe you $2,000, and I give you $2, you might respond to me with some violence and think that I understand the language of violence better than numbers, and you might be right there, but um, I might be in trouble with that if I try to give you $2 when I owe you $2,000. So we get that we understand how this works in everyday language. When we come to the Bible, when we come to Scripture, it works the exact same way. Take the, the meaning of what the author was intending. That's what we want to do when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Now, the last concept is the grammatical, historic, historical, I can't even say it, the grammatical, historical, hermeneutic. Now, what does that even mean? 
Well, actually, I kind of tricked you because that's what we've actually been talking about the whole time here. The grammatical historical hermeneutic. It refers to our method of interpretation. Um, we want to understand the grammar of what's contained in the passage of what's being said. In other words, the authorial intent. How is he communicating that? When you um, read something, you see, okay, there's a noun, there's a verb, there's an object, an adjective, etc. But you don't think about all that when you're reading an email, right? You just interpret it, you understand what it's getting at. So we do this all the time. We understand the grammatical constructions of, of, of what's being written and read there. Now the historical stuff we've already talked about. We want to understand it in its historical setting. Um, <clears throat> understanding the grammar is another ordeal. It's good. It's very important. We're not going to be able to do that tonight. So. Um, if you look, there's a little QR code. Hopefully it works on the back of your sheet to this book called Expository Studying by Joel James. You know, I worked out a deal with this guy. He told me you could download it for free. So um, yeah, please go ahead. So um, anyway, that's a really, really, really good book. I highly recommend it to you. Um, if you really want to get deeper into how to study the scripture, particularly the epistles, that book will help you a lot because <clears throat> He teaches English grammar in a fun way, which is an oxymoron, but it, it's true. <laughs> um, anyway, one of the sisters here asked me for a resource on how to study the Bible better. I gave her this resource. She paid me $20. Um, and she, anyway, she, um, <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> so um, anyway, she told me it's been good. It's been encouragement. It's been helpful. Um, so I encourage you to look at that. Um, expository studying with Joel James. Okay, we're going to do all of these things when it comes to um, studying the book of Titus. Now, just so you are kind of aware, I mean, it's on the slides, but what we're actually doing when we come to the scripture with the grammatical historical hermeneutic, what we're actually doing is trying to bridge these gaps, right? This historical gap, this cultural gap, the, geog oh my goodness, the geographical gap, and the literary slash language gaps. Those are all the things that we're trying to get or close the gaps on, build bridges to when it comes to understanding the scripture. So um, if you have questions on this stuff, you want to talk to me later. Obviously, it's pretty clear at this point. I'm a nerd when it comes to this. Um, if you want to nerd out with me, please, by all means, you don't even have to buy me coffee. I'll just talk to you for free about that. Um, okay, so what we want to do now is look at the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bible or your phone or et cetera, just open up to the book of Jonah. Um, now, I want to give you a little bit of time to do observations through Jonah chapter 1. Um, if we had more time, this would be a little bit more free-flowing, meaning we'd take a lot more time looking at the book of Jonah. But tonight, we're just going to do kind of a guided uh, process. So what I want to let you know as well is that when you're studying a scripture, it's not going to be this linear, take these 10, 12 steps to study the Bible, and then you're done. You're going to read it. You're going to make some interpretations, some questions, look up some answers, go back and reread it, make more observations, and it's just going to be a back and forth as you're doing observations and interpretations. Um, but tonight, it's just going to be a little bit more linear flow just because we want to get through some of this stuff. Um, but I do want to give you the opportunity to make observations. Um, 
So we're going to go ahead and read Jonah chapter 1. Um, and the way we're going to do this is I'll, I'll, we're just going to go a few chunks at a time. So we'll read a few uh, verses. I'm going to give you one to two minutes to actually make observations. Feel free to use that observation cheat sheet on the little handout. Um, if you have pen and paper, well, I guess don't write it in your Bible, but because you'll, you know, it's a process. We'll, we'll make mistakes. Uh, anyway, anyway, just write down on the piece of paper some questions, some observations that you see as we go through and read the passage. And, and again, I'll look at, I'll, we'll look at it together. And then I'll ask you some questions and we'll just work our way through Jonah chapter 1. So Jonah chapter 1, it reads, uh, we're just going to do verses 1 through 3. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so you have one to two minutes. Make observations, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and we'll come back in a sec. Okay, so that was just a couple of verses, uh, Jonah 1 through 3. Um, since we're doing this in a, in a somewhat directed fashion for tonight, I'll ask you a question. Who is the instigator for the book of Jonah? Who gets the ball rolling on this thing? Just shout it out. Who's that? God? The Lord? Right? Is that what I heard? All right. So the Lord. <clears throat> um, okay, next question. Again, this is things that you might be asking as you're making observations and you jot it down on the side. So who are the Ninevites? Anybody know who the Ninevites were? Okay, good. So this is where you'd have a question and you'd have to go find some other resource like a, like a study Bible or a Bible dictionary or something like that to get some help with this. The Ninevites, well, they were, um, Nineveh was a great city in Assyria. They were enemies of Israel. And at this time, uh, Nineveh wasn't actually the capital for Assyria, but it was still one of the major great cities. But what's the deal with the Ninevites? Who were they? God is telling Jonah to go to Nineveh. Who, what's the deal with these people? Well, <clears throat> something that was known about them is that the Ninevites were actually quite violent people. They were known for their brutality. Now, what they would be known for, one thing, was that they would flay people. And I thought it was fillet, but it's actually flay, um, which, you know, maybe it's the same thing. Basically, it means to skin people, cut their skin off. And they were known for this. And they were also known for beheading people, cutting off their heads. So the Ninevites were known for this kind of stuff. Um, now, what is God's command to Jonah? They're kind of combining things, right? It's a command. It's to Jonah. What's going on? Well, you would want to pay attention to the word here as well, arise, because this is going to show up multiple times. Arise, arise. Um, it says, arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. Again, another key word is calling out, as it comes up multiple times throughout Jonah chapter 1. Um, what was Jonah's response to God's command, and why? 
what was Jonah's response to God's command and why? Again, questions you might be asking yourself. Well, obviously, he got up and he fled to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, notice here the, that fact is pointed out twice within these three verses, right? So you'd want to look for things like that, the repetition. He's fleeing to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And Tarshish itself shows up like three times in this passage. Um, so again, things that you want to be noticing, what's being emphasized here uh, with the repetition of the words. Um, so why is Jonah responding like this? Well, we're going to see a little bit more about that later on, but that's a question you'd be wondering. Why is it that Jonah's just picking up and leaving, going to some other place named Joppa to try to get to Tarshish instead of going to Nineveh like God told him to do? What's the deal? Is it because they fillet people? Is it because they behead people? I don't know. Let's see. Um, <clears throat> okay, next question you would ask. Where in the world is Joppa? What, who, who knows? I mean, I'm from L.A., man. I don't know no Joppa. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, Joppa is right down there. Um, it's a coastal city, a city that shows up multiple times. One interesting piece of information, well, I'll give you that in a second. It's very likely that Jonah was actually up in Galilee or in Jerusalem when, you know, this, in this time period. He's actually from that area up in Galilee that you would have known if you had memorized 2 Kings 19 like I did. I'm just kidding. So, um, so, um, so he's probably in Galilee or Jerusalem. God tells him, arise, go to Nineveh, but he goes to Joppa, which we, again, see here is this coastal city. Um, then, okay, well, where is Nineveh? What's, what's, what's going on? What's Nineveh? Now, Nineveh is way up there in Assyria, right? Way northeast from Israel. And I did a little Google search to try to help us grasp this some. Um, if Jonah jumped in his, you know, EV, um, plenty of sun over there. He would have, it would have taken him, I don't know, roughly 18 hours. I don't know if that's accurate or not. There must be a lot of stoplights or something. But, uh, so, but, you know, honestly, at this time period, he would have taken a similar path to what is shown here. So, I mean, this isn't just, you know, hocus pocus. He would have gone up in a similar path that's shown there in blue, which is, you know, on the order of 1,300 kilometers away. Um, okay. What's, what's the deal? So why, why is he going to Joppa? So Jonah um, fled down to Joppa. I can't even say it. Past tense. Fled, right? Down to Joppa in order to go to Tarshish. Okay, so next question. Where in the world is Tarshish? Again, I'm from L.A., bro. Help me out. Um, Tarshish. That's way over there. So... <laughs> So nobody knows exactly where Tarshish is, but it's you know, thought to be that it was likely located in Spain. Now, that's pretty much the complete opposite of where Nineveh is, right? Um, so I hope this helps you see, right? We want to understand the historical setting, the geographical setting, because if not, we just read over this stuff and, yeah, okay, whatever, he went some other place. But Nineveh's this way, and he's trying to go way out that way. So clearly, he's trying to flee the presence from the Lord, like the text said. 
Um, <clears throat> so again, this is helpful when we're making our observations on um, trying to understand and interpret the scripture. What in the world is going on with Jonah? Arise, go to the city of Nineveh and call out against it. And he goes to Joppa trying to go to Tarshish. All right, next few verses, verses 4 through 6. Uh, look down in your scripture as we read um, verses 4 through 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. Okay, take another minute or two to make some observations on these handful of verses. Okay, we'll go ahead and call it good for that one. So, <clears throat> verse 4, you know, who was it that hurled this tempest on the sea? It was the Lord, right? <clears throat> now, just one quick thing. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. That's okay. Um, did you notice the word Lord is capital, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Maybe you're aware of this, um, but when you see it all in caps like that, the word Lord, what's really behind that in the Hebrew text is the name for God, Yahweh. That's what's behind when every time you see in the English text, capital Lord, it's God's actual name, Yahweh, behind that word in English. So it's not the actual word Lord like master, it's, his, it's God's name. And so we want to be aware of that because when it, Typically, when, it's, when God is referred to as Yahweh in the text, there's trying to make a point there. It's not just God the Creator. It's not just God, you know, the Almighty, something like that. It is Yahweh, the God of Israel, not some other random God from ancient Near East. So we want to pay attention to details like that. Um, so I hope, anyway, now you're aware of that if you weren't before um, that's helpful to know as you read through the Old Testament. You pay attention to when it says Lord as in Master versus Lord as in Yahweh. Okay, um, <clears throat> because that conveys the relationship between God and Israel and all of the implications in there with the different covenants like Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, etc. Um, okay, well, how did the mariners respond in verse 5? Well, they were afraid. And each cried out to his own God. Now, again, pay attention with afraid. Uh, we're, that's going to come up again later. Repetition of words, repetition of phrases. Now, God had told Jonah to go out and to cry out against the evil of Nineveh. And now here we see the mariners telling that each one of them was crying out to their own God. Now, these guys are obviously not Israelites. They're not even God-fearers in the, you know, proselyte sense of the Old Testament. These were pagans, and they worshiped false gods. And so they started calling out to their own gods for help. They started lightening the load 
on the ship doing whatever it is that they could to save themselves from the ship going down in this giant storm. But how does Jonah respond in verses 5 and 6? You know, and, and how does Jonah's response contrast with the mariners? What's the contrast between Jonah's response and the mariners' response? Well, again, we see the mariners calling out to their false god, and there's Jonah taking a nap in the belly of the ship. Now, what's up with that? You have the pagan guys who don't know their right hand from their left calling out to false gods for deliverance, and then you have the prophet Jonah of the true God who has actually heard directly from God doing nothing to save himself and doing nothing to help the other people, but he's fat and happy in the bottom of the ship taking a nap. Now, what's up with that? See how Jonah is being painted here in, as we go through even just this first chapter. And we'll learn more about Jonah as we go on. But what is also, notice some of these key words from Jonah all the way back in verses 3 down to where we just read in verse 6. What is the physical and the geographical direction that Jonah is going in? From the very beginning, what does it say? It says that Jonah went down to Joppa, and then what? He went down to the ship, and then what? He went down into the belly of the ship to take a nap. And then, as we see in chapter 2, you know, he gets swallowed by this fish. What do you think happens to him? He goes further down into the ocean. It says he goes to the bottom of the, of the mountains, which obviously is the bottom of the ocean. So Jonah's just keep going down, 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 away from the presence of the Lord, right? You see him, and you see that being conveyed through these key words and repetition of words of him going down. Now, just, you know, want to show, highlight, <clears throat> now who else was, um, you know, sleeping in a ship during a storm in the New Testament? You know, our very Lord Jesus, right? Right? <laughs> There's, there's something going on there, right? There must be. It's not coincidence. This is God's word, right? He must have put that there for a reason. That's a question you might have as you read through the book of Jonah. Um, and maybe we'll comment on that. So, okay, now why does the word arise show up again in verse 6, right? The captain says to him, arise, call out to your God. Now, this is to remind us, it uses the same word, arise, about God's command to Jonah way back in verse 2. So God called to Jonah, arise, go and call out against Nineveh. That's exactly what he's not doing. And so this pagan mariner is telling Jonah to arise and call out to his God. Now, Jonah has a job to do, but he's doing the exact opposite. So, now let's keep going and look at verses 7 through 10. We're not going to do observation here. We'll just read this one. Verses 7 through 10. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? Where is your country? 
And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now again, who is in control of all the things that's going on? Who controls where the lots fell and that it fell upon Jonah? Obviously, God did. God is the one who was in control of this. Now, how did the mariners respond when they heard that Jonah was a Hebrew, that he was a Jew? Well, they were exceedingly afraid, right? We heard that they were afraid of the storm. Now that they know that Jonah is, from, is a Hebrew from Jewish descent, now they are exceedingly afraid when they hear that he's from the one who, of God who made the that made the sea and the dry land. They're exceedingly afraid. <clears throat> so also you see the irony in this that Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord when he himself is saying, God is the one of the God of heaven who created the sea and the dry land. And he's trying to flee from him. Jonah, what's, what's up with you, man? Uh, may it be that as all human beings, when we're stuck in our own sin, we become blind and ignorant to the things of God because we're blind and stuck in our own sins, right? So perhaps that's what's going on with Jonah here. He's blinded because he's pursuing his own sinfulness. So why is Jonah fleeing the presence of the Lord? That's brought up again here. He's fleeing the presence of the Lord. Do you have an answer at this point in the text? There is no answer at this point in the text, but that's something that we have to keep in the back of our minds because it keeps being brought up over and over again. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, but we have no idea why. So let's read the rest of this, 11 to 17. Now then he said to them, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord. Lord, capital Lord, right? O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He'll take a minute to make some observations here on these last verses in chapter 1. Okay, let's go ahead and pick it back up. <clears throat> so what does uh, Jonah's actions reveal about his heart? What does Jonah's actions reveal about his heart? Well, clearly he's still being quite rebellious in this whole ordeal. Um, what was God's original command to him? To go to Nineveh and to deliver a message from God to the Ninevites. 
So maybe, perhaps, it's not too much. Now we're, we're looking more in terms of interpretation, not just observations. But perhaps it's not too much to think that if Jonah had just repented and actually said, okay, okay, I, I give up, I repent, Lord, I'll go to the Ninevites and I'll go give them your message. Maybe if he would have done that, the storm would have calmed down and everything would have been okay, right? It's, I don't, the scripture obviously doesn't say that, but maybe it's not too far to think about that. But what? What do we see? Jonah prefers, rather than repenting and going to Nineveh, he prefers to be thrown into the sea, which is effectively a death sentence. In Jonah 2, it basically conveys a picture of Jonah drowning in the ocean, again, going down to the base of the mountain and being on the cusp of death. So Jonah was more willing to be thrown into the sea and to die rather than to be obedient to God and to go preach the message that God gave him to the Ninevites. That's right. This, this is a death sentence to be thrown into the sea. Israelites were not known to be seafaring people. They're agricultural. They're farmer-type people, which is not a slight. It's just a reality. So what are the mariners? What does the mariners' actions reveal about them? Well, they were actually, what? More obedient and more God-fearing than Jonah was, at least in this particular moment, right? They were the ones that were calling out to God, seeking deliverance, even though at first they didn't even know who the true God is, and they were pagans calling out to false gods. But then what? At this point, they're calling out to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and what? God delivers them. God delivers them. Notice that before, right, they were also exceedingly afraid of the storm. But now what? They are exceedingly afraid of the Lord. And again, capital Lord, Yahweh. They're afraid of the true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. And then what? Then they offered a sacrifice to God and they made vows. Again, right? These are the ones who now are more truly fearing the Lord and obeying God rather than Jonah. Okay, that's, that's important things to highlight and to see from these mariners. So what else can you notice and see about the mariners, about the sea, and about even the fish at the very end of the chapter? What do you notice about these other characters, for lack of a better word, in the book of Jonah? Well, every one and everything is being obedient to God except for Jonah, right? Jonah's got his heels dug in deep, and he's doing everything he can to be obstinate against the Lord, prefers to be thrown into the sea to die instead of being obedient to God in contrast to the sea, the mariners, and the fish. So, you see this contrast between everything and everybody being obedient except Jonah. Now, what does this all reveal about Jonah? Again, why didn't Jonah just get up and go to Nineveh and deliver that message? Well, <clears throat> in order for us to get the fuller picture of what's going on here with Jonah and, and in the book of Jonah, we're going to skip chapter 2 and go to chapter 3 and just read the rest of this. 
So go over to chapter 3, Jonah chapter 3. Chapter 3 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and then he sat in ashes. And then he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It wasn't because Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites. It wasn't because Jonah was didn't want to make the long trek all the way out to Nineveh. It was because Jonah hated the Ninevites. He hated them, and he knew that God was going to deliver them. And that's why he fled from the presence of the Lord. Now, this is mind-boggling and astounding. God visits Jonah and sends him to Nineveh, and he gets up and takes off in the opposite direction, and it's, he's willing to put the lives of other people at risk. He's willing even to die himself by drowning rather than to deliver God's message because he knew that God would save them. This is crazy. This is insane. Now, Jonah as we see here, is even way more wayward than we realized in the beginning. Jonah's got some sin issues going on in his heart. But let's keep reading and see what's going on with the rest of this book. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. 
He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is amazing. To see who our great and amazing God is, to see his compassion, to see his mercy and his love on these people, the Ninevites, to see his mercy and his compassion on the mariners, to deliver them and to save them, and even to see God's mercy and his compassion on Jonah, who's clearly filled with sin in this particular moment. But we see God's mercy. We see God's compassion pouring forth through his word and how he dealt with all of these people. You and I are evil sinners when left to ourselves. And yet God had mercy and compassion on each one of us. And he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. God is merciful. And he is full of compassion. And see how he worked his sovereign hand in controlling the sea, controlling the tempest, bringing his mercy and deliverance to undeserving mariners who were pagans, to evil people in Nineveh. He sent his servant to show his mercy and compassion on them. And you even see his mercy and compassion on Jonah, his wayward servant, to sanctify him so that Jonah would know the living God even more. He brought all of this to pass. God was the instigator at the very beginning of the book. God brought all of this to pass so that Jonah would understand the mercy and compassion of who God is. 
And he worked all these things to bring deliverance and salvation to the mariners and to the Ninevites. And he does that even with us. Right, several weeks ago we saw, right, that God is sovereignly working everything over creation, over history. And he's sovereignly working all these things. He brought salvation to the Ninevites. And at the same time, he's working in the life of Jonah, the individual, the wayward prophet. And he's working all of these things as well in you and me. He is sovereignly controlling all of history. He's sovereignly orchestrating everything in your life so that you might know Christ more. So that we might be made in the image of Christ. And so we see God's compassion. We see his mercy. We learn all of these things about God in the book of Jonah. And so I read this passage several weeks ago in the service, and I thought it would be fitting for us to read it one more time. This is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 9. And the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are undeserving of your love. We are undeserving of your mercy and your compassion. But Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is slow to anger, a God who is merciful, a God who extends your steadfast love to each and every one of us. So, Lord, we respond in worship to you, in praise to you, because that is the only response that we can do, is to worship you. So, Lord, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you've revealed yourself to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we have your word. 
It's in our lap. It's in our phone. It's in our bag. And we can take your word and read and study and see your greatness and your majesty as we study your word. So, Father, I pray that you bless each and every interaction that we have with you through your word and that you would show us who you are, that we might know you, that you would sanctify us and make us to be more like Christ. And Lord, that we would just be in awe and respond in worship to who you are, Lord. And we thank you and we praise you and we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.